This is The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Burnett. We're back this week from our summer hiatus, and the only thing hotter than New York City afternoons are the takes about President Trump's performance at his post-summit press conference in Helsinki. We've heard words like disgraceful, betrayal, and even treasonous tossed around, and not just from partisan talking heads. So I've grabbed my boss and CJR editor and publisher, Kyle Pope, to talk about the press's coverage of the Trump-Putin summit and whether we've entered a new era in the relationship between the president and the press. After that, my colleague Alex Neeson comes on to talk about the comeback narrative as it relates to the men of the Me Too movement. How should we view these attempted reemergences of those who have been disgraced by allegations of harassment, abuse, or misconduct? Before that, though, the reactions to Trump. You have been watching perhaps one of the most disgraceful performances by an American president uh, at a summit in front of a Russian leader, uh, certainly that I've ever seen. Uh, an extraordinary Those words from Anderson uh, Cooper were the first things that CNN viewers heard as Trump and Putin made their way from the podiums in Helsinki. And the criticism only mounted from there. At that press conference on Monday, Trump, of course, declined to endorse the conclusions of America's intelligence agencies and decided to castigate the FBI instead of putting pressure on Vladimir Putin. So, Kyle, first, it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. As you watched the coverage unfold after the summit, uh, you tweeted that the reaction from journalists marked, quote, a new era in the Trump media relationship. Before we get into what might change, what stood out to you in the coverage? Well, I mean, this Anderson Cooper clip that we just heard was was I mean, it'd be, it would be extraordinary if even if that was just it. But that was just the beginning. I mean, I um, I actually watched. I remember I, I watched the press conference, and then I had to go away and do some other things. And then I went back to Twitter, and I was and I really was sort of astounded by the level of um, disbelief and incredulity and um, you know and even sort of anger on the part of of the reporters that I follow on on Twitter. I mean, and there just seems to be, there seemed to be this kind of collective, like, you know, are you kidding me? This guy actually said this. Um, and then there was like some really quite strong, like condemnation. Um, and, you know, you sort of, you know, and you know this and anybody who's on Twitter, you sort of you sort of learn to watch for the rhythms of this thing and you right. sort of see these waves start to crest. And this was this was one of the m- sort of most pronounced, like immediate um, um, reactions that I've seen in a long time. And it was just very clear to me that there was a lot of just sort of declarative statements by reporters saying, like, this is the most outrageous thing or this president has just sort of... Um, broken all the rules. Or, and these are from journalists, hard news reporters, not just pundits. Yeah, and a, and a lot of a lot of network people. Uh, but as well, you know, there, there was, um, I mean, I mean, Brian Stelter, who was, I don't know where you put him on the pundit reporter. Uh, he's an analyst. He provides criticism and reporting, yeah, I, mean, I guess, right? He, so. he was saying, like, you know, um, we need to sort of own our outrage, basically. He said right. something along, along, along those lines. And, you know, there were reporters writing for The Times. So, you know, you saw the original Twitter reaction and then you saw the first takes being written. And in the news coverage, you just saw language about, um, you know, 
a president sort of out of bounds of normal presidential behavior that was much stronger than I've seen in, in, in a long time. Yeah, I saw uh, Dan Balls in the Washington Post, who's kind of the dean of Washington reporters, I guess, um, wrote a piece of news analysis where he said that, quote, the president refused to stand up for the country he was elected to represent and protect. Um, in the Times' A1 news analysis, Mark Landler uh, basically broached the idea for the first time I've seen in the, the news section of the paper, um, he talks about the calls it the foreign policy equivalent of Charlottesville and then basically says that Trump's actions, uh, quote, on so many levels brought to the surface a question that has long shadowed Mr. Trump. Does Russia have something on him? Yeah. And that seemed like a, a bridge that we just crossed on Monday. Yeah. I mean, it, it really did seem like a dam that had opened up. And what I what I think is you know there's a there's a lot of reporters who have had a lot of frustration in in covering Trump's ties to Russia and the Russia investigation and you know this just there's the sense that there's there's been a lot of smoke but it's been very hard to connect the dots back to what the president actually thinks about any of this because he's been you know he said stuff but it hasn't been quite as direct and for him to you know and all, all of this you have to put it in the context of when he was saying it, which was, you know, whatever it was, 72 hours after these new indictments came out, right. detailing the level of Russian involvement, where he was saying it, which was um, in a foreign country standing next to the guy who most likely signed off on this, it all sort of added up to too much. And I think you just saw this kind of this this. Uh, and again, like this DM analogy where it was all just sort of unleashed. And, it, you know, you brought up Charlottesville. I think the exact same thing happened then when, you know, after Charlottesville and after a million other things that had happened having to do with Trump and race, there were a lot of reporters who, who were like, you know, there's a lot that's not being said here about who this guy is and what he what he believes. And then he had that press conference in Trump Tower after the Charlottesville protest in which he talked about both sides being Many to blame. people on both sides. Yeah, right. and, th- and it just sort of, again, it opened up the floodgates and people are like, hey, wait a second, you know, this is, this is racist language. And a lot of people who were trying to dance around the question of whether his beliefs were racist or whether his actions were, ra- were racist were sort of released and were able to say what they thought. Um, and the only, the, the other, and the thing I actually mentioned in this tweet was, the same sense of of sort of pent up um, analysis um, around the question of whether he lies. And again, there was a lot of journalists dancing around trying to find a million different euphemisms for lie, mistruths, uh, misstatements, falsehoods. And then the New York Times and some other people started using the word liar and again, or lie. And then again, you just saw like it just opened it up. And, And then and in each of these cases, the question around lying, the question around racism, and now the question around Russia, um, I think it's reframed permanently um, how we talk about those specific subjects in Trump, So, which is why I think that at least when it comes to Russia, we're in a new era and the language is going to be different. Yeah. When you first tweeted that, and as we talked about it uh, throughout this week, I was initially skeptical because we have had so many outrageous, unprecedented moments um, in the Trump presidency. You know, every norm that we think of, uh, that we can think of has been broken. And it constantly seems like, okay, something happens. 
um, there's a, a moment of outrage, uh, a heated night of reaction on cable news, and then two days later, the next story comes along, and we kind of forget it, and then things are back to normal, because there are these institutional norms of our profession, of the political world, uh, and as as you've continued making this argument, I think I'm coming around a little bit more that, hey, Plus this I, is... I, I, I <laughs> Uh, but yeah, th- this is one of those moments um, of which there have only been a couple uh, in in Trump's presidency where maybe we have maybe the dam has broken on this one specific issue. Yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree with you at all that the attention span of the media covering Trump is way too short. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I've earlier this week I assigned a writer to I said like one week from today, and this was the day after the Russia press conference. Let's go back and look at how much of the national conversation or in the, in the conversation in the national media is still around this Russia thing, because I predict it's probably not going to be... Well, how much conversation right now is about families separated at the border totally. where you still have children? So we have a million examples of that, but that doesn't. that's true, and that, I think, is a fault of the press, and I think, um, and, and we've talked about this, and I've written about um, the willingness of the press corps to be led around by the nose by Trump, which I think is... Ex- excessive. But I do think that when it comes to a few of these areas, and look, in all of the areas that we write about, in all the er- in all the Trump stories, and there's now many, many, many of them, we're really only talking about three or four where there's been a sea change in the coverage. And I, th- and I think that these, the things that we've talked about, the, the mistruths, the lies, the racism, and now Russia, I do think that there, I think the narrative is permanently change. Now, there could be new facts that come along that, that change that. I mean, we may, you know, there, there is this active, um, you know, legal case around Russia. And we may learn stuff that adds or subtracts from our understanding of his collusion or his um, whatever the word the is. The meddling. And his, yeah. There's so, well, like you said, there's so much swirling around it. Right. So, but I, I just think that um, there, you know, there's, and it's a funny thing to talk about, in 2018 in a media climate that is so diffuse with so many different kinds of voices. But there still is a an inherent um, conservatism, uh, especially in, in big news organizations, to get too far ahead of the curve on some of these stories. So you, you, you do have this tendency to still uh, hold back on some areas in terms of, you know, of really unleashing um, language and opinion about Trump on any number of topics. But there have been these few cases where it, it has been unleashed. Um, yeah, I mean, does what does that look like practically? Does it mean people, reporters, ask different questions? The thing that struck me, uh, Jonathan Lemire at the press conference from the Associated Press asked Vladimir Putin, do you have compromising information on President Trump? Putin notably didn't confirm or deny, kind of gave a roundabout answer. Chris Wallace then asked Putin later that night, do you have, uh, inf- you know, compromising information? And that discussion where we're dancing around, Ben Smith was interviewing, um, I'm forgetting his name, but the senator from Oregon, and basically said, do you think they have something? And, and the senator said, yes. And he says, do you think the P-tape's real? And asked him just, asked a sitting U.S. senator straight up about it. And he said, I think something like it. So we're I guess on that specific question about Compromat, there's an example where I don't know if the questions were being asked that explicitly 
a month ago. Yeah. No, I, I definitely – and I don't think Chris Wallace would have asked that question right. if it hadn't been asked the day before in the press conference. And, and, and if it hadn't been asked in an incredibly direct, you know, quite forceful way by two – um, yeah, both both by two uh, wire service Jonathan reporters. Lemire and and Jeff uh, Mason from Reuters deserve yeah. credit. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's a change here. Um, you know, I think the interesting question. I mean, um, you know, we we you wrote in the news in the CJR newsletter about uh, Margaret Sullivan's piece, which 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 tried to. Um, this was a piece that ran, I guess, on Tuesday, right, or Monday. Yeah, the day. It was, I think it was either that evening or the next morning. They tried to grapple with, all right, um, in, in you know, sort of taking everything that we've talked about as a given, which is this is a new day. What do we do with it? Um, what do we do now? Um, how do we think about reporting this differently? And she sort of had some ideas about you just have to be a lot more forceful. You have to be more clear about what it is we're talking about here. Um, and I mean, I have a ginormous respect for Margaret um, as a as a media writer and as a journalist. I, I still don't think we quite have a have a blueprint going forward right. for what all this means, um, despite her efforts and others. I mean, I I was watching um, Rachel Maddow on Monday night after all of this, and she has been way out on the uh, on front on on a lot of these Russia issues. She's just been pounding on it over and over and over again. And, you know, she was sort of gobsmacked like everybody was. But then when it came time to like, all right, well, what do we do now? She was very honest about sort of throwing up her hands and say, I don't know where we go from here. Um, So, you know, it's one thing to identify a new moment, but then it's another thing to think about once we've once we've internalized this and once we've sort of said there seems to be something fundamentally wrong with this president around Russia. It's not normal. It's not. It doesn't fit in any kind of historical pattern. It doesn't. It doesn't conform to the facts as we know them, which has been laid out by his own intelligence agencies. Um, where we are today is that we've the media has internalized this as a um, as a not normal um, situation that needs to be talked about as such. But but in terms of what do we do now? Um, I'm I'm very confused. Um, yeah, it's never. I mean, we haven't been in this position before, so there's right. nothing to fall back on and say, you know, well, this is how you're supposed to approach this topic. And even even the even on the politics side, I mean, the Democrats and the Trump opponents seem sort of confused. I mean, they've been like, well, we should um, we should delay some of the uh, we should delay the some of the nominations, or we should take a look at some of the legislation and what it's not add more dr- sanctions on Russia. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does seem that everyone is I, I think that I think there still is this sort of collective sense of like, you know, when something happens and you spend a lot of time just sort of shaking your head, um, <laughs> right. we're still sort of in the head shake mode. It was it was shocking to see very professional television journalists uh, on Monday afternoon kind of grasping at straws uh, for, for descriptions. We had a good piece um, in CJR on, on, I guess it was Tuesday or Wednesday, by Todd Gitlin, who's a, Tuesday pro- morning, yeah. Yeah, a professor at Columbia who's, um, who's been a, you know, a really strong Trump critic. But, I mean, one of the th- and this is sort of along the lines of what, what do we do. I mean, one of the things that he did was um, – he sort of called out the coverage, and, and he was he was criticizing the delay in getting to this point, 
Like, and that's that that's an interesting discussion to have. You know, it's an interesting discussion to say like, why did it take us? Why did it take this event to finally get people coalesced around the sense that like, wow, there really is something wrong here. And and this is this is what what Margaret and and to another degree. Um, Jay Rosen and Jeff Jarvis have been talking about for a while now, which is, is the is the way that the media covers the presidency even equipped to deal with these kinds of outlier, incredibly outlier situations? Like, are we even are we even capable of thinking about this, at least in the way that we normally do this kind of coverage? I mean, I remember writing something a few months ago that tried to get at this as well and saying like, we, we need a new surge of creativity and imagination in terms of how we cover Trump because the, the notion of saying, you know, people who, do, who wish to remain anonymous say X, Y, Z, Trump spokesman said, those people are crazy and this is fake news. Huh, where do we go now? Right. <laughs> that seems somewhat, somewhat unsatisfying to the moment that we're in. But uh, like you were saying earlier, we don't have uh, other options right now, like in our journalistic toolkit, right? It well, requires the creation of new models. We do. I mean, we, we have, I mean, you, you referenced this Mark Landler piece that ran in the Times where he, he sort of called it as he saw it. And he, he, he didn't feel the need to sort of, you know, have this sense of balance in terms of like, well, what does the other side think about this? Um, yeah. You know, I think the Times and the Post are doing a lot more stories that, you know, that, that really clearly are news analysis, heavy emphasis on the analysis part of it. Um, and I just think that there's much more. I mean, I, I think we need much more of that right now. I think, you know, we all know the facts fairly quickly, but we're all um, and every single day we're like, what was that? What does that mean? Um or how do I make? How do I even get my head around that? Um, so I think we need to sort of begin to speak to readers where they are, which is a state of incredible confusion. Yeah. And instead of saying like, "Here are the facts from yesterday," it'll be like, "Reader, I know that you are like on the floor because you can't make sense of the world. We don't. We're not entirely sure we know either." And that, by the way, is a big is it would be a big departure in itself to get away from the voice of God and sort of say, this is uncharted. We don't really know what's happening. Here are some ideas. Maybe they'll turn out to be good ideas. Maybe they'll turn out to be bad ideas. Maybe this is an avenue to look at. Maybe it's not. But I, I think that I mean, as you can see, I'm just sort of making this up as I go along. But yeah, I, th- I but think it's, it's a I, rejection I think, of the conservatism of the industry. Right. Some level is what you're talking right. about, I, right? I, and I, I think I think we just need to meet people, meet meet our audiences where they are. Yeah, it's good advice, and I'm interested to see what comes of that piece and where the conversation is a week later. Um, Kyle, thanks so much for coming in and talking through all this. Thanks. All right, for our second topic, I'm joined by my colleague, CJR senior staff writer Alex Neeson, who this week, along with our other colleague, Karen Ho, wrote a piece about longtime WMYC host Leonard Lopate and his return to the airwaves after being fired in December for, quote, inappropriate conduct. Lopate 
has begun hosting a new hour-long show on WBAI, which is a progressive radio station in Brooklyn. And his return's been met with some controversy, which you covered, Alex. Yeah, so Leonard Lopate's show, uh, new show, is called Lopate at Large. Um, it's an afternoon show on WBAI. Um, it's a call-in show uh, where he'll host guests to talk about culture and music and the news of the day, um, seemingly identical to uh, the Leonard Lopate show uh, that aired on WNYC. He was suspended and then fired from WNYC um, after an investigation uh, for, quote, inappropriate conduct. We never uh, quite under were told what that conduct was uh, or what the nature of that conduct was. But we do know WNYC uh, reported that there had been complaints made against him, substantiated complaints uh, about uh, involving bullying. Um, and he was fired uh, sort of during this wave of uh, the Me Too movement where uh, men for a wide range of offenses were losing their jobs. Right. And you mentioned the Me Too movement, which is why I wanted to have this conversation. It's one that we've been kind of waiting to have and talking about for a while, which is that over the past nine months or so, we've seen numerous powerful people lose their jobs. Um, Some of them we're expecting we haven't heard the last of. And there's this question, and and again, seeming expectation that, okay, these people are going to be back. They're going to try and resurrect their careers, make some sort of comeback. And what, as journalists, do we do in covering those comebacks? Uh, We're obviously not hiring people uh, as actors, as journalists, as anchors or whatever. But how do we cover uh, these people? Yeah, I think um, in my head, there's sort of two questions. And the first is um, to kind of question the validity of a comeback and then write like what our role is as reporters on um, exploring that question in our coverage. Um, And I think I don't think that there we have sort of a clear answer on how we do that. There have been a number of stories that have sort of gotten at this. Some of them are more straightforward reporting on the movements of people who have been accused, people uh, like Matt Lauer. There was some stories about him just being seen in Manhattan. Same with Louis C.K., him being seen in a restaurant above a comedy club and sort of speculating about what that means. Are they taking meetings? Are they kind of inching their way back Um, to the ones that are uh, more straightforward, like Charlie Rose, who... It was reported that uh, someone, either him or someone on his behalf, approached a producer about a show. A show in which he would interview other men who had been brought down by the Me Too movement. Yeah, ill-advised. Yeah. (laughs) So I I don't think that there's a clear answer about sort of what our role is. Because on one hand, particularly as media reporters, like these are the actions of prominent figures in media as part of this months-long sort of um, news event. Uh, And and so I think the easy answer is like, yeah, we have a very clear, it's newsworthy, and so we have a clear responsibility to cover these. Um, But it gets more complicated when you consider the tone of these pieces um, and, you know, what the implications are for reporters to treat these comebacks as inevitable. And I think we have to consider the power that we have as reporters in uh, sort of encouraging or uh, sort of jumpstarting these comebacks just by sheer nature of writing the story to begin with. In the same way that writing stories about Harvey Weinstein started all of this, there's a power that we wield. I think that touches on an interesting point, which is the editorial choices that we make. That, yes, these are powerful, well-known figures, a lot of them, and they are newsmakers and and any attempted comeback would be newsworthy. Um, 
But it's important to remember that the people who drove this story, the real heroes of this movement, um, are not even the reporters. They're the women who spoke up. We ran a piece a little while ago about the silence breakers and specifically those who had worked in news media and their struggles to find jobs after they had spoken out. Um, I'd love to see more pieces about that. Um, and obviously continued coverage of systemic problems in our industry and others. Um, but yeah, when the piece is about the Charlie Roses and Matt Lowers do come out, you mentioned the tone of them uh, and the approach that journalists, the skeptical approach that journalists need to maintain. Yeah. The, so the easy, easiest comparison in my mind is thinking about uh, the stories that we see that we have seen about Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and Louis C.K. and all of these people, um, and and thinking about how we cover people who are accused of similar crimes who are not famous. So I'm thinking about like professors and teachers, for example, who are fired uh, from universities or schools or whatever, even high school teachers. Um, for similar offenses and the way that then reporters run follow-ups to see where they land, right? The tone of those pieces are completely different. Um, There's a saying, right, past the trash, where the easiest thing for institutions to do um, is just to fire people and and wipe their hands of it. uh, And then the person goes somewhere else. And so, and we know, I think Katie Baker wrote about this in in her piece for The Times, um, that that's the easiest thing for people to do and that it comes at someone else's expense, right? Where they land at a new job. And so when we have seen reporters cover the story beyond the, the offender being fired, the tone of those pieces is one intended to, uh, you know, to to raise awareness in some sort of attempt to protect, right? And so when we write a, a piece that's about Louis C.K. being seen in a restaurant above a comedy club and quoting his friends in the piece, that takes a different tone than somebody saying, let's try and follow the steps of a person who's accused of abusing a person and is now being hired somewhere else. Yeah. In that Times piece you mentioned, um, Baker talks about her frustration with having to write about it um, and then says, quote, it is only by discussing the issue, not ignoring or dismissing it, that we can begin to come up with something better because the bad men, as she calls them, are going to make their comebacks, whether we like it or not. It's up to us to determine what it looks like when they do. And again, our job as journalists is not to advocate for people not to have jobs, to be forced out of industries, um, but it certainly is to to provide context and not let history be forgotten um, when the next, again, Louis C.K. project comes up or when Charlie Rose makes his return to television. Um, keeping that context in mind is important and keeping it at our audience's keeping it at the front and center of our audience's um, attention is important in, you know, just a basic journalistic responsibility not to be too credulous and not to say, okay, well, it's been a few months, person X has served their time, let's go on as if nothing's happened. Yeah, and I think it's also um, sort of the traditional rules of journalism, of course, are that we don't advocate for or against anything. Um, But I think that as reporters, we do have a responsibility to consider that the just the existence of a story about a person making a comeback, sort of regardless of of the tone of it or sort of what position we take this new this position of neutrality that that we try to take. Um, I think we have a responsibility to consider that even if we don't mean for it to, that 
the its impact, its tangible impact in the world might be that it advocates for or against. And I think that that's a consideration that we have to make as we're reporting it um, and making decisions about who we call, how we headline stories, sort of the treatment of the comeback as in as inevitable uh, is something that um, Lindsay Zoldas mentioned for The Ringer. She wrote about, um, she talks a lot about cover, how we've covered these uh, sorts of attempts at a comeback or she mentions um, the way that a story can kind of assume that something is going to happen. And so she says, quote, it is a failure to imagine a different story, a better world. And I think that it, that's a hard question, right? Because as a reporter, it's like, well, this thing is happening. And so we have a responsibility to report on it. But if in doing so, we're kind of pushing us towards this this new world, as uh, she says, um, and, and sort of what that means for the people who've been victimized by these men. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it was a great piece uh, that Zola's had on The Ringer that we'll link to in the show notes. The other thing that comes from focusing on these individual men is a sort of lack of focus on the institutions and the systems um, that empowered them in the first place and that may potentially be providing them with their second chances. Uh, And again, when, when this whole movement, as this whole movement has gone on, we've said it's important to address the people in power who have done bad things. But what's more important is to keep reporting out the systemic abuses, because in so many industries, you're not going to have big name people like Matt Lauer, who everybody knows. That's why I think that uh, New York Times piece on like abuse and harassment on factory floors was so well done. So focusing not just on these men and their comebacks, but again, the systemic problems that empowered them and, and are uh, acquiescing to them as they do uh, make these attempts. Yeah, Anna North writes about this for Vox, um, the notion that we're skipping a step here. Uh, and particularly when we think about men who are journalists that have been um, accused of these things because the institutions um, that require the reforms are newsrooms. And so, uh, you know, those are stories that I think reporters ought to focus their attention on. Um, press NBC about like what actually, if anything, is happening, is changing in the absence of Matt Lauer and and other similar news organizations um, the, in the same way that we might want to know what Hollywood is going to do to, to change the system that allowed Harvey Weinstein to exist. Yeah, that's a really good point. We've gotten some postmortems from these investigations, say, of the New York Times investigation into Glenn Thrush or NBC's investigation into Lauer. Um, I don't think we would say either of those was as transparent as we would want it to be. Yeah, no. Um, But yeah, even more important than looking back is, okay, being transparent about what changes going forward. Uh, And speaking of, uh, Kristen Chick did a five-month investigation for CJR that's up on our site now. Um, She spoke with 50 people looking at the problem of sexual harassment and assault within the photojournalism community. Yeah, it's a really great piece. Um, Please check it out. It is thorough. It's a really, really well done piece that uh, sparked a lot of conversation in the photojournalism community this week. And shines a light on a, a segment of the journalism community that I think we ignore too often. Yeah, that's a good point. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to my boss, Kyle Pope, and my colleague, Alex Neeson, for being here. Please check out all the great work we've got up at CJR.org, and we'll see you next week.